0: hebrews or chapter 11 at least looking at these different stories of what it means to have faith in god and a radically different set of people who come to us as we open up those those pages but hebrews eleven thirty one. if you want to follow along you can do so certainly in your bible 1192 is the page number there's a backstory here and that backstory is in joshua chapter 2 and We'll be looking there a little bit as well. So if you want to make sure you're ready for that, I think it's 208 or so toward the beginning. Um, you'll be able to find that too. And I've actually put the put the verse up up here for you as well, just so you can follow along if you're unable to uh, open up for whatever reason. But we're going to talk about faith in the strangest places today, where we find it in Hebrews 11:31. This is what God's word says to us by faith the prostitute Rahab because she was because she welcomed the spies was not killed with those who were disobedient now this is the word of God pray he adds his blessing to it as we unpack it a little bit Um, Rahab's an interesting character isn't she she's identified as a prostitute and she gets a lot of press for that in the Bible she's almost always referred to as the prostitute all all, all the time too she's got the scarlet letter a uh, on her she's an outcast even in her own society in many respects she may have been celebrated perhaps as uh, somebody in their religious practices who was used for those purposes as well but certainly somebody of ill repute we're going to be looking at what about her faith is commended here today there's a story in the Bible, Jesus told a lot of stories, and I'm guessing you're all familiar with it, but just to, to remind you very, very briefly of one of the wonderful stories Jesus tells that tends to speak across cultures uh, of a friend who's traveled all around the world, and he said, this parable, this story, every culture I go to, some aspect of it just seems to speak to people. And it's uh, the story of the, the prodigal son, and some, some people have different names for it, but just a reminder you know there's two sons with a father and one of the sons is just tired of of being at home and wants to to go live life and and do things his own way so he asks for this share of the inheritance which actually shouldn't be distributed until the father is dead so in a sense he's saying dad act like you're dead (laughs) to me give me all my money and let me go and and he does it the father gives him his share of the inheritance and he he leaves and he lives a crazy life, you know, he's clubbing all the time and he's going wherever he can go and doing all the things that money can do and living what he thinks is a, a freeing, wonderful life. But of course over time when the money runs out, his friends aren't really so much friends. Nobody is coming alongside him to offer support and he's absolutely destitute. And the only thing he can do in terms of getting some money and having a, a living is doing the one thing that culturally speaking would put him in an outcast category. He's going to feed the pigs. Very unkosher for the Jewish community. And he starts thinking when he's doing this, my life is so miserable. I had so much that I left behind. I wonder if my dad will take me back. And, uh, and he does. He's so, he's so full of shame. He's come to the point in his life where he, he's at the end of his rope and he's willing to do whatever he needs to do just to survive And so he starts heading back home. And as he does that, he's wondering how he's going to be received. In fact, he says, I'll just be a servant. You know, I'll I'll be the lowest of the lows. Um, That's what I'm going to tell my father. And you know the story. You know, from a distance, the father has had all these nights probably of pain and sorrow and I'm sure he's wondering what did I do wrong and how could I have done things differently and what's what's my child's my child safe and healthy I don't know he's waiting eagerly for his son to return and as soon as on the horizon he sees his son he doesn't wait for him to come and to offer his words he just runs to to embrace his his son not because he's deserving not because he's done just because it's his son and his son who was lost has come home, killed a fattened calf, put out the huge spread. Everything that we have we need to celebrate because what's lost has been found. And there's great joy because all the brokenness in his heart is beginning to be healed by the return of his son. It's a great story, but there's another character in it, right? <laughs> there's the older son who stayed behind, who did everything dad asked, And he sees his father responding in love to somebody who thinks deserves something entirely different. And he grows bitter. And he's angry. And he says, well, what about me? How come I'm not getting that kind of treatment as well? Isn't it nice? You know, I guess I should have just left and squandered everything too. Because then I'd get a big party. And his father says to him, hey, son, everything I have is yours. you You haven't been lost. You've been right here the whole time. And there's a danger then of feeling like or sensing that I've done everything right. Why don't I get something like this as well? Now, that's, there's a lot of different nuances to that story. It's, it's really an amazing story, a picture of, of God's love <clears throat> of what it means to be, like we sang at the very beginning, somebody who recognizes your need as a sinner, but also the dangers of somebody who doesn't perceive that they have that need. And it seems to be getting along just fine. And the attitude they have as well toward, well, the the father, who in this case happens to be God in Jesus' parable as well. And I want to look at this text with that in mind, with a couple of things. I mean, really from this text, I see an encouragement and a challenge. And couch it in in terms of this prodigal son's story. And we see first off that Rahab demonstrates a forgiving faith for those who are prodigals. I mean, if you're somebody who put yourself in that prodigal category or feel like you live in that space, there's forgiveness for you. The celebrated figure in this story is not an MI6 agent, right? Or somebody who looks like they have it all together. It's a Canaanite prostitute. A woman living in a pagan, pagan country practicing a trade riddled with shame. And of course this exalts God and it demonstrates a couple of things. He can use anybody. He can change anybody's heart. And that's the way of God throughout all the scripture. But you can't do that unless you recognize your need. So only those who know their need can receive forgiveness. That's a basic premise of the gospel. I mean, it's interesting to me that the, the writers... Uh, if you encounter Rahab again, like I said, refer to her as a prostitute. She knew what her role in society was. She didn't have to be convinced of the fact that she was not, you know, not the greatest character on the face of the earth. The prostitute Rahab, the prostitute Rahab, the prostitute Rahab. A lot of Humiliation. Where's her identity? Where's her self value? Where is this coming from? I mean, everybody looks at her and says, "You are a prostitute," and that's the badge that she's wearing, and she can't hide that either. I have a friend, uh, Josh Bales, and who uh, was a, as a songwriter, and he he wrote a song, kind of exploring this concept just just a bit, um, called "Only the Sinner." It goes this way: "Only the sinner, only the weak." only the man who lies and steals and cheats, only the woman who runs around, only the child with a selfish mouth, only prostitutes and murderers and crooked businessmen, only those who have no alibi, only those who cannot hide their sin, only the dirty, never the clean, only the beggar men, never the king, only the messed up, never the maid, only the sinner Jesus saves. Now, the, the point of this isn't that there's a glorifying of sin. It's interesting in the in the Bible, the Bible records and reports sin. It's not commending this as a great way to go. <laughs> in fact, the, the Bible says quite otherwise. I mean there's a, there's a way that we honor God in the way that we live our lives. But who qualifies for the kingdom? Only people who recognize they actually have a need. And in some respects Oftentimes, people who we call prodigals are much closer to the kingdom than those of you who are in the pews right now looking almost as nice as I do today. Because, you know, we look pretty good, don't we? And really, compared to others, we're not that bad. You know, a handful of years ago, back when people go door to door doing evangelism, sharing the good news and... Um, you know, when the evangelism explosion, you knock on the door, if you've ever been part of that, back really in the 80s, probably it was in its heyday, and one of the questions is, you know, if God were to ask you, why should I allow you into my kingdom, what would you say? And most people say, well, I'm a pretty good guy, or gal, you know, I, I haven't murdered anybody recently, and, <laughs> or maybe ever, uh, I haven't you know done bad things, I haven't cheated on my taxes, or whatever the case may be, and so The idea was to expose this notion that if I'm just good enough, I can get into the kingdom. But what the the gospel does, what the Bible does, is it shows all of us, not a single one of us qualifies. Sin one time, you're out. That's God's economy, because he's perfect, right? He's holy. And in his holiness, to be true to his character, he cannot dwell with sin, so... Like James said, as we looked at the book of James, just one, you just stumble at one point of breaking the law, you're guilty of breaking all of it. You may wrestle with whether that's fair or not, but that's God's economy. And he says, you are guilty. You're the sinner. And your label, you know, the liar mark, the, the, the prideful mark, right? The, the complaining mark, And thank goodness I'm not written in the scripture as my main chief sin that I try to hide or you as well. But she's outed. And in so doing, so are all of we. We are all guilty. And until we know that, until we recognize that really we are completely helpless before God, we'll never really experience what it means to enter his kingdom. I was trying to think of helplessness. There are times in in my life, I'm sure you can identify. Has there ever been a time when you felt at the end of your rope completely helpless? You literally could not do anything else. Uh, The the one that came to mind for me, and I think I've shared this before, I know I I have, is uh, when we were probably a decade ago at an all-inclusive resort that uh, uh, Jill's brother had received some Finances and sent all of us there, the whole family, and there was windsurfing. Some of you heard this story. Windsurfing, like, as, a, as an activity. And I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm a fairly good athlete, and uh, I, I like adventure, so I tried windsurfing. Now, you're supposed to receive instruction uh, before you go out, but they weren't around. But given my own natural abilities, I figured I could figure this out on my own. Um, so I did. I started going, and I was having great success going out. And I was, you know, turning and whatever and I was getting farther out and it was awesome and I thought, hey, I should probably head back around. I could not figure out how to get back to the shore. Like, I could get out, I couldn't come back in. And I just kept going farther and farther and I was starting to get a little bit concerned. Sun's beating down on me. Um, I probably hadn't hydrated enough. And I don't know how long I was out there, but I I got to the point where I was done. I literally because the, the, the sail would fall, and I'd have to pull it back up. I was just too tired to do it anymore. And I just gave up. I, I, I was finished. Now, thankfully, my brother-in-law, who was a little more sensible, was doing something different and noticed that I wasn't coming back. So he, after some amount of time, went and got some help, and they had to take, get a boat and come out and rescue me. I mean, I was literally just floating to wherever I was going to end up. And, you know, and part of the story, too, is they had some good friends who just the year before, the husband went out on one of these things and never, never returned, never returned. So I'll tell you what, I thought I was done. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I had no physical energy, I had nothing. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to die at an all-inclusive resor- <laughs> resort. Resort. I mean, this is not what I signed up for. Now, it's my own stupidity, of course, that got, got me into that situation. Um, but when I think of being helpless, I mean, that's it. I got to that point. Now, here's the reality. If you've never had this experience of, like, kind of a prodigal experience, one of the, one of the challenging things is, like, you may have not come to the point where you realize, I'm completely helpless. Maybe you say it, but you haven't really felt it and lingered in that space. I know that's why some of us want the wonderful testimony. I was saved from all this stuff. Hallelujah. And, you know, people who have that testimony, they would trade yours for theirs. If they, if, I mean, the, the brokenness and the mess, it's real. And it doesn't just go away. Nonetheless, there is a posture before God of humility and helplessness that is a prerequisite for encountering God in such a way that we recognize our need and, and how he gets us there is different for each of us but the, the, that's where we need to get help, you know I helpless I come to you I have nothing in my hands that I bring helpless to the cross I cling see, that's a faith for the prodigals that's a forgiving faith and what I'm trying to show you is we're all prodigals every single one of us even the older brother was he just had a different way of expressing it. But he put himself in a very different category, of course, like we do, respectable types. And God says, no, all of you need saving. So on the one hand, only those who know their need can receive forgiveness. And Rahab demonstrates that. But here's, here's another thing to consider from this. And I don't have it up there, apparently. But it's this, that nobody is beyond God's reach to use for his purposes. Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the, do you think she would be a good candidate for God using her in a way that glorifies him? Nobody is beyond the, beyond the reach of God for his purposes. Now, that may be something you need to grapple with yourself. You don't know my shame, you don't know my hurt, you don't know my what I've done. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's God can reach anybody. The all-pursuing love of God can overcome all of that, even your sin. And then the other thing is, what about those around you? Maybe you look at somebody and you say, there's no way God could ever reach this person. The prostitute Rahab. By faith, the prostitute Rahab. God can reach anybody. His all-pursuing love can overcome. Occasionally read this devotional. Uh, and Charles Ringman, Resist the Powers, which Jared gave me, uh, just a, uh, about a week and a half ago or so, it says this, we are far more likely to give up on people than God is. His is an all-pursuing love. Ours is often far more faltering. Yet in spite of all appearances to the contrary, there could be no final word on even the worst of people. The labels of insane, criminal, deviant, pervert do not ultimately imprison people. There is always the possibility in Christ to break the bonds that bind us. I've seen many hopeless people wonderfully converted and they have frequently manifested a far greater passion for the kingdom of God than the conversion of nice people. And I've seen that. People who know what they're saved from, look out. They're going to be wonderful trophies of grace for the kingdom. They're capable of doing things that are amazing. I mean, and this is kind of spilling over into the next point because Rahab demonstrates a challenging faith for those who were the older brothers. Rahab's actions are amazing against the backdrop of the culture where she was and the threats of receiving, if you know the backstory to this, the spies who are going into the land. And if you've been with us through Hebrews 11, you know this land was promised by God to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And they just hadn't quite gotten there yet. And even Moses is knocking on the door of the promised land. But he doesn't go in. This whole generation dies. And now they're entering the land. And they're going to spy it out. They're going to see what needs to be done in order for them to, to claim this for themselves, and to see God's promises come about. None of them having seen that promise actually happen, the fulfillment of the land promise right there, the the giving of it to these people, and now they're there. And the spies are sent to to see what things are going on in Jericho, and, well, they're in danger, and so they're hidden by this woman. And she demonstrates faith according to this text. So those of you who are older brothers then you remember you're the ones who stay behind and do everything good and go to church on most Sundays or um, yeah, just pretty good people. You yeah, haven't done anything super super bad and you think God owes you something because of it. You may not realize it but we have a tendency to think that well I deserve something from God for having been pretty good and really you're upset when you see other people get things that you should get who aren't as good as you and That kind of signals maybe this older brother syndrome, if you want to call it that as well. And the reason that Rahab demonstrates a faith that challenges those of us with that mentality is the very same reason that she had before. I do not do well on PowerPoint all the time. Sometimes I think it's there and it's not. It's not there. But the same thing here again. Only those who know their need can receive forgiveness. That's how she challenges us who believe we're the older brother. Churchgoers may not see it. And yet, ironically, Rahab is commended for her obedience. That's what's so interesting about this text to me too. By faith, she did something, and she's being commended for being obedient to what God called her to do. But if you're the older brother, you're all about obedience, right? Look what I've done to earn something better than the prostitute Rahab. And so this person writing to Hebrew Christians who knew the Old Testament well... They're saying, you want a good example of faith? Look at the prostitute Rahab. She obeyed. She trusted. She feared God in a way that some would say otherwise. You know, it's inescapable, at least for me, because these were Hebrew Christians. They knew their Old Testament Bible pretty well. And there's a category here that's being labeled on, on Rahab. But do you know who else is called the prostitute or acts like the prostitute a lot in the Old Testament? Israel. Israel, the people of God, they prostituted themselves by forsaking their first love and chasing other, other gods. And we call it idolatry, and it looks, looks different, but this is a big problem in the Old Testament and in our own hearts as well today, that we not craft them the same way, that we, we want somebody else's affection, so we serve, we, whether it's money or status you can unpack this for quite a while but in the old testament when you see that word they they might think some of them well that's us you know israel's called the prostitute and these shepherds the false shepherds are leading them away there needs to be a true shepherd who comes and exposes them for who they truly are and he is going to come for sure but they'd hear i think these categories at least in part to say well we are them we are the idolatrous ones we're the prostitute that's where he seems to be heading and yet still as older brothers the gospel is coming to us and so Rahab's used as a picture of faith strangely you wouldn't put her in that category to people who feel like she's the last person maybe who should be lifted up faith can appear in the strangest of places and we've talked about faith before I use that word a lot. And you know, there is a faith here, and every time I say that word, she has a little thing that she does. Faith Malch, getting very tired after this series of, <laughs> of making that symbol, and I say it like a hundred times at least in the message. So um, hang on, we'll be done with that Hebrews 11 in just a few weeks. Uh, so what is, what is faith? After all, Good job um usually in 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 the bible and systematic theologians tell us that it has some different categories uh to it as well doesn't seem to be advancing here but three three components of faith um one is knowledge and if you look back in joshua chapter two and if you if you want to turn there too uh, i don't have this up there i know for a fact you'll see that when the spies have entered and they come to her place, and she's in Jericho, and you can listen to the great message Eric Chang preached last week on this. Wonderful insights, really, to the whole experience in Jericho. She's received the, them into her house. and In verse 8, if you go back there, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. She's gotten information. She's heard God's actions and somehow there's been chatter saying, hey, this is what this God has done. And we've said before that not, faith involves knowledge you have to know something you know in the in the new testament paul talks about this too how can they how can they have faith without hearing without having knowledge I and mean, this is the all compelling motive for somebody like ashish going to india you know just setting aside his his it position and saying god's called me to give information to people who maybe have never even heard it before one of our uh, missionaries that we support Mark carried his lovely bride. They are here today surprisingly and refreshingly in our midst. That's what's motivating them too as they raise funds or getting close to go uh, to the Czech Republic and to share the gospel, the good news, content with people. This is stuff that you need to know, but genuine faith isn't just stop there. You have to go from knowledge and you have to move on to the next element and you can know something but you have to have the conviction that it's really true and we we see this happening even here with Rahab in verse 11 when we heard of it we heard the information what was her response and it's a collective one here but she's making a a, a statement too about her own response our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below she heard the information and now she's taking She's she's responding to it. There's a conviction, a reality. This is, I think this is true. It's not just information. It's making a difference in my life as well. And she's melting in fear. I mean, there's some response to the reality of that statement as well. And the supremacy of the Israelite God over all other gods. But it's not quite finished yet. Even, Even here in verse 12, she goes on. To say, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you'll spare the lives of my father, my brother, brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, that you'll save us from death. She's finding refuge in this God. She's trusting in him. And that's really the three components of faith. There's knowledge, there's conviction, and there's trust. It's that third element that older brothers can struggle with at times and prodigals as well? Am I really trusting God? And that trust spills over into action. It's an act of faith. In the New Testament, in the book of John, when it uses faith every time, it's active. It's something that's done. There's an action associated with it. And that's what we've seen in Hebrews 11. It makes a difference in your life. Who wants a faith that makes no difference in their life? I mean, if it doesn't, we're, we're really literally just playing dress up this morning right we shouldn't be here but it does make a difference no matter who you are because God can save anybody and God can use anybody and he does even the likes of me and you but it's not just static there's a dyna- dynamic response to it this encounter with the living God that motivates us and moves us toward a life that's radically different toward going against the grain here. I mean, culturally, she's putting herself really in jeopardy. But she's willing to do it because she has this conviction. She's willing to seek refuge and her path was by no means easy. She's still living in Jericho. She had no assurance of being delivered. Nobody else is believing that this is going to happen. The end hadn't come yet. Judgment was coming to Jericho, but after helping the spies, she had to wait. And, you know, she had to sit there and just kind of Wait. And what does she do in the meantime? Well, What what faith always does. You put one foot in front of the other, like we saw last week. You just take the next step in the journey, one day after the other, and that's where it lives sometimes. It can be counterintuitive. Abraham, go sacrifice your only child. That's kind of not how I would have planned things. God, faith can be really counterintuitive at times. Rahab's, hiding these spies. And, you're, you know, your choices may not be so dramatic. You're like, I mean, God hasn't called me to sacrifice a child or to hide spies, you know, in Nazi Germany, hide some Jews or something like that. I mean, I'm just you're kind of living your life, you know, relatively normal, chaotic, suburban, roughly-ish lives. And what, what about me? Um, but I, I do think it's worth asking this question, how is God challenging me to demonstrate my faith? This is, this is what God did. It's one of the interesting things that I thought Eric brought out of the text from last week, this whole generation that was being led by Moses through the Red Sea. Now there's a new generation, and their challenge is to go into Jericho. The, the challenge for that generation was different than the previous, previous one, but God's challenging both of them. And the same thing is true for us as well. So there's kind of a big-picture question here, too, but just to drill it down very personally, how is God ch- It's a good way to think, at least for the rest of today, where, where is God challenging you to demonstrate that? And it can be something very, very practical. You know, Michael Craddock, who, who pastors North Cincinnati Community Church, uh, I remember him as he was the youth leader when he would order pizza. I'm, ta- I'm talking about practicalities here. And he'd order pizza for the youth group. And all the pepperoni pizza was gone and somebody would come up and say where's the pepperoni pizza it's all gone i wanted pepperoni pizza said this you know student or whatever and michael would respond well what do you think god's teaching you how is god challenging your faith right (laughs) right, right now so it's not just like these huge categories it's really simple things very very simple it's it's more intentionality to say What is God doing in me? How am I responding and interacting with this very simple challenge in front of me? There's no pepperoni pizza. It seems silly, right? But you know, theologians over the years have said those small things are training for the big ones. If you haven't practiced it in this kind of small way, when the big moment comes, you may not be ready. That's how God is working in us. And of course, it can still happen that God will equip you, but that's the design of it. One of my concerns, just practically speaking, as a pastor, and when I uh, teach some of these students, I get to teach some freshman students, is that this whole thing, it's not just some theory out there. It, it applies to every single breath you take. If it doesn't, you end up with what we have a lot of times. You know, people maybe go off to college. It's like There's no practical reality to me. It was my parents, and I only went because of them. I mean, this is really practical stuff. It applies to everything. So it's intentionally thinking through that. How is God challenging me and causing me to grow in my faith? And we can look at Rahab the prostitute to see that. But it doesn't stop there. This is the final observation from this text. Rahab Rahab demonstrates not just this forgiving faith and challenging faith for the prodigal and the older brother, but the faith itself has a legacy. There's something that we can pass on. I mean, Joshua 6:25 says this: because the spies have gone back, made the report, the people it, you go listen to the message last week, march around the city, The walls fall down, they take the city of Jericho. And here is Rahab, who says, in Joshua 6:25 it said of her, "Joshua spared Rahab. the prostitute, again, <laughs> with her family." and all who belonged to her. See how her faith has made a difference in her family? She identifies herself with the people of Israel, with the God of the Bible, and she's starting a, uh, the starting link in a chain of believers, showing that God can and does use everybody. And that sounds like a nice story in and of itself, but there's really more going on here than even meets the eye. Some of you may know this, but if you look in Matthew chapter 1, it's the genealogy of Jesus. Listen to these first six verses. A, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We've, we've looked at some of these people. Abraham was the father of Isaac. The, the, Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar and Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab. Aminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Sam and Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. This is the Rahab back there. In, in Jesus' lineage, a woman of faith with no idea how she was part of the bigger story of God. You know, there's five women in the genealogy of Jesus, all with moral charges brought against them. Think about that for a second. You know, our storylines of who God uses and who qualifies in the kingdom completely shattered in what most people look like in this genealogy. Like, this is the most boring thing I could possibly read. A list of names that feel rather irrelevant and difficult to pronounce. No. God delights in stories of redemption. That's what we find in Matthew 1 through 6. Rahab's not only in Jesus' genealogy, but he doesn't just delight. He specializes in them. The Rahab prostitute, the Rahab. Ultimately, in Jesus' the genealogy, he takes broken lives and he mends them. He delights in making all things new. You know, Tim Keller's written a handful of books now. He wasn't until he was about in his 50s that he started reading, writing books. Now he writes one every week, is what it feels like. And, uh, Part of the reason he did that is because he realized, you know, I don't really have that much to offer until I've lived quite a bit of life. That was his own, own premise. Um, 50s, 60s now. And he's been reading. But he, he wrote a book called The Prodigal God, if you haven't had a chance to dialogue with that. Um, and he teases out, I haven't gotten really much into what he says, but it's worth reading. You see it's pretty digestible size. He says, God's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin or wrongdoing. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. I wonder if you really believe that. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've deliberately oppressed or even murdered people. Or how much you've abused yourself. The younger brother knew that in his father's house there was abundant food to spare. But he also discovered that there was grace to spare. There is no evil that the Father's love cannot pardon and cover. There is no sin that is a match for his grace. Jesus shows the Father pouncing on his Son in love, not only before he has had a chance to clean up his life and evidence a change of heart, but even before he can recite his repentance speech. Nothing, not even abject contrition, merits the favor of God. Interesting, you'll have to read that and see if you agree with that. The Father's love and acceptance are absolutely free. Well, here's the thing. That's true sort of, right? Because actually there is a price associated with it. It's not totally free. But this is where the gospel comes in because Jesus, who really was the only older brother who has actually done everything right, said, I'm willing to become the prodigal for you and to take on all of your sins and to pay the price so that this love comes to you for free. And that's, that's the beauty of the gospel. I'm guessing some of you don't really believe that that's true, even if you've been sitting in church your entire life. So take this moment to, to take that in and t- to reflect on that kind of love that God has given to you. And not to lose heart, especially for those maybe who you feel like are outside the reach of God's kingdom. And today, if anything else the prostitute Rahab <laughs> nobody is outside the reach of God's uh, of God's love and look at what he did through her we celebrate the lord's supper and we do that at least in part